It's been well over a month now since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. Uh, since then, people around the world have been eagerly checking the news, listening to reports about what's going on there, and wondering whether or not Ukraine will be able to continue making its stand much against a much bigger opponent. Uh, for our own part, uh, we have been praying especially for our brothers and sisters who are on or near the front lines, uh, that the gospel will prevail there through this church and through its witness, even over the evils that we have seen um, depicted on the screen and in reports. Now they say that history is written by the victor, and it's been an eye-opening experience, I think, in all this to see the struggle over the story that's being written. Uh, propaganda is nothing new. But it's been interesting to compare reports of what the Russian people have been told versus the reports of what we're hearing. At the start of all this, it seems that the Russian people were being told that the Ukrainian government posed a serious threat to the stability of Russia itself, that leadership had been seized by Nazis, and that this invasion was, in fact, an act of self-defense on the part of the Russian government. Uh, that's, that's a very different message than what we know and what the evidence seems to suggest. But it goes to show how important controlling the narrative of the situation is. There's a battle going on, not just over the control of villages and cities and streets, but over truth itself, a battle which we reflected in the situation that we see in our text this morning. As Luke tells us, how Jewish leaders in Jerusalem continued to work to try and stop the apostles and the gospel that they were preaching, that Jesus is the risen Christ, and that there is salvation from sin and no one else but him. Now, in the book of Acts, as we have seen from the beginning, we see that it is telling the story of Jesus' continued kingdom work. Now, whereas the Gospel of Luke, which was written by our same author here, tells us about how Jesus established his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection, the book of Acts accounts for how Jesus has expanded his kingdom to the nations through the testimony of his church and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus warns us in John 16, verse 33, that in this world we will have trouble. But he encourages us to go boldly and courageously about the work that he has called us because, he says, I have overcome the world. Jesus' victory over the kingdom of darkness and the priorities of this world is crucial for the success of the mission that he has called us to as his people. He calls us to be his witnesses, to be salt and light in the world, to announce his victory to those who are still caught in the chains of their sin, to expose sin, to call people everywhere to faith and repentance, and to live with one another as citizens of his kingdom. Not everyone, though, who hears this message is responsive to it. In fact, there are many who find the gospel repulsive and who are committed to doing everything in their power to resist it and to resist the priorities of King Jesus. Now, what we're looking at today is what happens when the message of the gospel meets resistance. As we will soon see, things are starting to heat up for the church. The Jewish leadership is really starting to enforce its authority, trying to put a stop to the expansion of the Gospels, which, as the, as the apostles were preaching in Jerusalem. But, as we read what Luke has recorded for us about this growing pressure, we're meant to see that Jesus' words are true, that he truly has overcome the world, and that he continues to do so even now through the word of his power, the Gospel 
of grace. So let's begin by reading our text. If you would, please stand with me as I read our passage from Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and continuing to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now, many signs and wonders were being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, that they were all, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew, drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, anytime we read a passage like this in the Bible, it can be helpful for us to ask ourselves why, out of all the things that Luke could have recorded for us, the Holy Spirit led him to record this. It's helpful for us to ask those sorts of questions of the text because it reminds us that what we have just read has a purpose, not just for recording history, but also for instructing us in how we're to live as followers of Jesus. The main idea of this passage, why I think that this is an important text for you and for me, is that Luke has provided us with insight here into the way that God prevails in his people and over his enemies through his word. That is, through the gospel. This is a passage that is meant to fuel the confidence of Jesus' church as we carry out his kingdom orders, to be his witnesses, to be a light in dark places. It's meant to cause us to lean on the way, to lean into the way that God works in and through his word. So the main idea I have for you this morning is simply this. God's word will always prevail. God's word always prevails. And our passage this morning really breaks up nicely into three sections where we see God's victorious word at work. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, we want to look at specifically at the ministry of his word, the ministry of the word. Second, we'll be looking at how the word prevails over God's enemies. We'll see how God prevails over his enemies through his word. And then third, we'll look at how the word prevails in God's people. So, let's begin uh, by looking at the ministry of the Word, the Word of God at work. And before we look specifically at the conflict between the apostles as they, as they carried out the commands of Christ and the, and with the conflict they had with these Jewish leaders who were opposing them, we really need to see something about the mechanics of how God works in and through his word to display his power and to glorify the name of Jesus. So, in verses 12 through 16, Luke has provided us with a sort of summary, not unlike what he's already described, uh, in cha- say, like in chapter 2, about the life of the church and the way the gospel was going out in power. But whereas Luke has formerly been focused on the life of the body together, here he's he's aimed a little more particularly at accounting for the way that God was demonstrating his power through many signs and wonders that were being done, even regularly, through the apostles. Now Luke doesn't go into any specific details in these verses the way that he did when he was describing the healing of the lame man who, who, had, been at the, who had been at the temple gate back in chapter 4. And that's really because I think he has a wider purpose for recording all of this. Luke means to communicate to us how the power of Jesus was at work in and through the apostles in unprecedented ways. In verses 15 through 16, he says that people were coming not only from within Jerusalem, but also 
also from the villages and the towns that were around it, that they were bringing their sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits, and that they were actually being healed. In fact, in, in verse 15, Luke says that people were going so far as to put their sick in, out in the streets on cots and mats, just hoping that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. Uh, friends, that is incredible. Uh, can you imagine putting your loved one out on the street, hoping a shadow was going to touch them? We've all had friends and family, loved ones, who we've hoped and prayed will be able to see the doctor or the specialist who can treat them successfully. So we can imagine how people must have been scrambling, trying to get their loved ones to Peter and the apostles. But even as we read what Luke says about how these signs and these wonders were being done, it's important to see the purpose of these miracles, how they were being done in the name of Christ. What we're meant to understand is that these signs, these miracles, were intended to prove to people that the gospel which the apostles were preaching, the good news that Jesus is the Christ, is true. In John 14, verses 12 to 13, Jesus had actually told his, his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater things than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So these miracles, these signs, these acts had a place, not of drawing attention to the apostles themselves, but drawing attention to the name of Christ in whose name they were healing people, to show that Jesus really is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. The whole reason Jesus says the disciples would be able to do this is because he was going to the Father. And as we read what Luke has reported, it certainly seems to fit the bill of what Jesus says, doesn't it? And we read about all these signs and wonders, it's almost like we're being transported back to the days when Jesus was doing his ministry on earth. And actually, I think we're supposed to make that connection. Since the work being done by the apostles was being done in his name. Luke has recorded an incredible display of the power of Jesus as he rules and reigns as our exalted king here. These people aren't being healed because Peter or the apostles had some special sort of holiness or because they had a power that was unique to themselves. These things were happening through them, Luke tells us, to show that the gospel they were preaching was genuine and powerful. These were meant to be tangible signs and wonders to show that the gospel of grace is true. Even while it's tempting as we read about this to fixate on these amazing signs of God's power uh, as it healed these people and freed them from these unclean spirits, Luke has really represented us, represented this whole thing to us as the ministry of the word. This is a ministry of the word. Jesus hadn't commissioned the apostles to go out into all the world and be healers, though we see that amazing works of healing are in fact being done in his name here. Now, Jesus had sent the apostles and sends his church out to be witnesses to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, to his true nature that he really is the Son of God. Jesus' calling, first and foremost, for his people is to be messengers, heralds of the good news. Jesus did not come simply to remove the symptoms of suffering that are caused by sin. No, he came to destroy the cause of the curse of the curse itself. He came to make people new, to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
You can see the priority of the ministry of the word here in verse 12 uh, through 14 where, where Luke tells us that the apostles were all together in Solomon's portico. That, that's a space inside the temple where Peter and John actually were first arrested when they were there with the lame man. And we're told that they were gathering there regularly. And they were just standing there. They were speaking the words of life to the people, which means they were preaching the gospel. Now the church, we see, has come a long way at this point from meeting privately in the upper room. Now they've gone public. Everyone who came to the temple was hearing the apostles preaching the good news of Jesus, and it was having a clear impact. People were responding to this. And it seems like they really, uh, Luke tells us about two responses the people were having. Uh, in verse 13, Luke says that, that people were afraid to join them, though they held them in high esteem. Whether that was because of the way they had heard of the way that Peter and John had been arrested, or whether they, had, they were afraid to join because of what it, they had heard of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, which we looked at last week, Luke isn't really clear about that. Regardless, we see that even though the people were hesitant to join with them at this place, at Solomon's portico, it was plain to them that God really was doing something amazing through the apostles and specifically through the message that they were preaching. Now the second response that Luke tells us is, is that more than ever, people were hearing the gospel and that they were being added to the Lord, which is a way of saying they were being saved. At this point, he's, Luke has just stopped giving us numbers. You remember uh, at Pentecost, he told us about how many people believed, and then with Peter and John and the healing of the lame man, he talked about more people that believed. Now he just tells us that multitudes, both men and women, were believing what they were hearing and that they were being saved. The gospel was bearing fruit, not just relieving people's physical suffering, though that is a good thing, but it was actually bringing them new life in Christ. That's the real miracle here, friends. People were coming to faith. They were hearing the message of the gospel that was being preached to them. They were experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were repenting or turning from sin. And they were being joined to Christ by faith. And all of this was happening through the preaching of the word. And that really is an important part, really key, I think, to understand the message of Luke's, uh, of what Luke is telling us here. Actually, as we look at this whole passage, and really throughout the whole book of Acts, you'll see a cord running through it all that binds it together, and that is the ministry of the word, the preaching of the good news of the gospel. These miracles that are being done were being given as a sign, as a signal that the message being preached by the apostles was true. It had God's blessing. If we press on through the rest of what Luke has recorded for us, uh, we'll actually find that time and time again he's bringing us back, bringing our attention back to the preaching of the gospel. This is what the apostles were doing when they were first arrested uh, by the temple guard. This is what the angel of the Lord tells the apostles to do when he frees them from the prison. In verse 28, we see that the apostles are on trial, not because they were healing people in Jesus' name, but because they were preaching the good news of his death and resurrection. In verses 31 through 32, we see that the apostles declare this very message to the council who has them on trial making it a point of obedience to God that they must speak this word. And then in verse 42, Luke says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You see how Luke really is trying to bring to your attention the ministry of the word and how it was turning the world upside down. 
God's word is powerful. By his word, the Bible tells us God created the world. By his word, he continues to sustain it. By his word, he directs it and rules over it. And so we see in the new creation that he makes people new, that he saves souls through the word of the gospel as it is applied to us. God has given his church a message-driven ministry. And we must never forget that. There are many things which we are called to do as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but they all hinge on this prime directive. God has given his church a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry where we call people to be made right with God, not by doing things to earn his favor, not by being religious, but by trusting in the work of our risen king, Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling or making the world right, bringing people back to himself, not counting, themselves, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is the high calling of the church. That is the high calling of this church and any true church. No duty of the church takes the place of this purpose, this mission, this ministry. And if we're to follow the example of the apostles, then we're going to have to entrust ourselves to this conviction that God prevails in the hearts of men and women through the declaration of his word. There are a lot of ways to draw a crowd together, but there's only one way for people to be made righteous. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ. And how, Paul asks us in Romans 10, are people to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, if we want to see God working in people's lives, we've got to commit ourselves to this model. It is beyond our power to save people's souls, but it is not beyond the power of God. And he has given us this calling to be his witnesses. Eric and Katie, we pray for you guys a lot. And this is the foremost thing we pray for you and for your church. And when we get reports about people like Seasway who are preaching that and taking risks for the gospel, our hearts burst because we can see the glory of Christ on the other side of the world. Praise be to God for that. So keep doing what you're doing. And church, commit yourselves to this. All right. So that is the mechanics of the word. Let's look now at how the word prevails first over God's enemies. Take our second point. 
So Luke, while he tells us that the people held the apostles in high esteem, we see that their leaders did not. In verse 17, Luke says that the high priest, this is the top dog, rose up, and all who were with him, namely the Sadducees, that's the, we talked about the Sadducees, that's the aristocratic, priestly leaders there in Jerusalem, that they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles, and they put them in public prison. Now, they were fed up with the apostles, and they were fed up with the messes they were preaching, and what they were teaching in the temple, so we see that they used their authority to try and put a stop to things. These are some of the most powerful men in Israel. They had already ordered the apostles to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, but clearly the apostles had not listened to them, and now the gloves are starting to come off. They began to put, they began this, this assault really by putting the apostles in prison. That way, they reasoned to themselves, at least we'll be able to put a stop to this circus in the temple. But even these erected physical barriers, Luke shows, failed to silence their message. During the night, there was a divine jailbreak. Luke says that an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought the apostles out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to all the people all the words of this life. And the apostles did so. They entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to preach and teach just as they had been doing. Now, the high priest and the other Sadducees tried to physically stop the apostles from preaching the good news. But clearly, God was not going to allow that. And this isn't the only instance where we see God actually rescuing people out of jail. Uh, this is going to happen again with Peter, specifically in Acts 12. And then we're going to see that something similar happens again with Paul and Silas when they're in prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi. What we're, what we're realizing in this, in this is that for all their strength, chains and bars... Iron and stone are no match for God's word. God does not always remove his people from such mistreatments. Sometimes he actually allows us to go through temporary suffering, to refine us in our faith, to perfect us in obedience, and to use us more effectively to accomplish the work that he has set apart for us to do. That's why James tells us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials for our faith because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness has the effect of perfecting us and completing us as we bear the image of Christ who himself suffered for us on the cross. When we suffer for the name of Christ, we are becoming like him, formed and filled in his image. Here, though, we see that God did remove the apostles from this prison. And he did so in a way that should have been a clear message to the high priest and their leaders and all who were opposing him. While the apostles were back at it, preaching and teaching in the temple, Luke says that the high priest and those who were with him uh, called the council together, uh, the ruling body there, and that they sent to the prison to bring the apostles out for their trial. But when the officers came to take them before the council, they found that while the guards were in place and the doors were firmly locked, there were no apostles to be found. It's not like the apostles found a back door or managed to slip out a window. Everything in the prison was secure, but no one was actually in there. They had vanished without a trace. Uh, just imagine how these officers must have felt as they gave this report to their commander and the high priest, uh, uh, sir, they're, they're gone. 
Every one of them, and everything was secure. The guards were there, just like they're supposed to be, but these men, they are nowhere to be found, and we don't know what to do. In verse 24, Luke says that the captain of the temple and the chief priests were deeply perplexed about the apostles, and they were wondering to themselves what all would come of this. That is, until someone else came and told them, Look! The men you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. You've got to wonder how long the apostles had been there doing that. I mean, it would have taken time to call this council together, and it would have taken time for them to send for the apostles. So I'm inclined to think that they were preaching in the temple for a while now. In verse 26, Luke says that after they heard this, the captain of the guard and the officers went, and they brought the apostles before the council. But they did not do this by force, because they were being afraid of being stoned by the people. Now that is an interesting detail because it really shows us how blind the Sadducees, the men who and the men who were on this council, even the high priest, were to the truth of the gospel. The works of God had been made plain to them, but they refused to acknowledge it. Instead, they continued in their opposition to the gospel. Uh, the fact that they followed through with this inquisition after God let the apostles out of the prison where they had thrown them just shows us really how deceived their hearts were so that even with all these signs, these healings, even with this empty prison and the fervency of the apostles' witness, they still would not believe. Their hearts remained like granite. Now, we've, we've already seen how the gospel prevailed over the enemies of Christ, these leaders who had put Jesus to death, who are now opposing this message of his life by miraculously rescuing the apostles out of this prison. But as we look at what these men said to the apostles, we actually find the gospel prevailing over them in three more ways. First, we see that they were unable to dampen the resolve of the apostles to go on preaching the good news. In verse 29, Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples before this council, tells them, as he had before, we must obey God rather than men. Peter even goes so far as to preach the gospel again to the council, identifying Jesus as the hope of their fathers, calling him the fulfillment of God's salvation promises throughout the ages, the one who had conquered death through his own death, whom God had raised from the dead and exalted as Savior. The dampness of a first century jail cell was not enough to quench the fire of the gospel that was burning in the bones of the apostles. This was the truth. And the apostles were committed to it, even at the peril of their own lives. They had counted the cost of following Christ, and it was worth it to them because they were filled with the love and the glory of Jesus. The second way we see the gospel, the word prevailing over these enemies of God, is in the way that it serves as the standard of judgment against them. It serves as the standard of judgment against them. Their response to this word is really what identifies them as enemies of Christ and of God, even though they had all of these outward marks of righteousness. The apostles may be the ones who are on trial here, but the guilty verdict actually falls on the high priest in this council. Just listen to what the high priest says to them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles make it quite clear. This wasn't their gospel. They weren't anarchists trying to 
turn the status quo um, upside down. They weren't trying to overthrow authority here. They were servants of Christ, called and commissioned to speak the good news. That is why they had been escorted from the temple and not from the prison. The angel of the Lord had freed them and told them to continue on. They weren't out for a, a personal vendetta. They weren't out to smear the names of these leaders. They had been called to speak a message of life, to call people, including these very leaders who have them on trial, to repentance and forgiveness of sins, to receive true righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. To listen to this order from the high priest and this council, the apostles first would have to disobey God, and that is something they simply could not and would not do. In the book of Romans, Paul explains quite clearly that the law can only reveal our sin. It cannot make us righteous. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. The men on this council had set their hope on a righteousness of the law, not realizing that they were condemned by it because they had rejected Jesus who came to fulfill it. A day is coming when everyone man and woman, Jew and Gentile, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In John 5, verses 22 through 24, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The standard of judgment, according to Jesus, is whether or not you hear his word and believe. The high priest and all who were with him, who heard the gospel as Peter and the apostles were preaching to them, were condemned by it. Because they love the form of righteousness. Of righteousness. They, they love being looked at as a righteous person. They love the respect that it came with it. But they really hated Christ. And they hated this gospel. The word prevailed over them, revealing their phoniness and their self-love, the blindness and the hardness of their hearts. And it condemned them really as enemies of God. As Jesus explains in John 3, 18-21, whoever believes in him, that is the Son, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Exposure of the true nature of these leaders, their enmity, their war with God, is revealed in how Luke tells us they responded to the apostles and how they responded to the message that Peter preached to them. In verse 33, Luke says that when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him, to kill them. Murder filled their hearts. They had already and once crucified Jesus, though he had done no wrong, and now they wanted to kill his followers. The judgment was clear. Like whitewashed tombs, they had the appearance of righteousness, but on the inside they were bound to sin and death. And that leads us to really see the fourth way we see the word prevailing over the enemies of Christ. The word prevailed as an authentic message. 
And it prevails as an authentic message. The gospel meets every test for truth. For all their rage, these leaders still couldn't snuff out this message. And so Luke gives us really a helpful guide through the words of a man named Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel, what you need to know about him is that he was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. So he's kind of, uh, he's more of a, he's, he's not from the Aristotic, aristocratic area, but he is, he actually holds, he's, he's a very devout student of the scriptures. In fact, he's a teacher of the law who was held in high honor by all the people. So while all of his colleagues are filled with rage, we see that Gamaliel was actually filled with reason. And so giving orders to the apostles out to put them out, to put the apostles outside for a little while, he addressed the assembly and he cautioned them about what they were about to do. Things had happened in Jerusalem which simply could not be explained apart from God's work through the apostles as they preached the word. There had been many other movements and many other self-proclaimed messiahs who had risen up over the years. You've got men like Thutis who gained a following and then he was killed and everyone was with, who was with him had been dispersed. Then you've got guys like Judas the Galilean who, who managed to do something similar but also met a similar end. So, in the present case, Gamaliel reasons, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan, or this underta- if, if this is an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, he says. You might even be found opposing God. Now that's a possibility that hadn't entered their, their minds yet. And yet we see Gamaliel laying down a test for truth. His words really are wise. The reasons for the council wanting to kill the apostles, they're personal. They're not biblical. God not only used Gamaliel to spare the apostles from being killed, but he also, in his mercy, uh, set a standard or a test for truth here. It would be going too far, I think, to say that Gamaliel had been persuaded by Peter's testimony, but clearly he hadn't ruled the gospel out. Otherwise, he wouldn't have offered this word of caution to to the council. Instead, he urged his fellow leaders to judge the gospel by the test of time. If it's false, it will fail. If it lasts, however, well, maybe there's something to this after all. I don't know if Gamaliel ever believed the gospel. I'm inclined to think maybe he didn't. But I do know that the gospel has met and far exceeded his test. For over 2,000 years, the church has continued in this work, spreading not only throughout Jerusalem and its region, or even in Israel, but to the furthest reaches of the world. The sun never sets on the kingdom of Christ. The prevalence of the gospel and the church doesn't ultimately prove that it is true, but it does meet Gamaliel's test for truth. It has prevailed against every opponent to it, not by the sword, not with artillery or guns or bullets, but by the Spirit and by the Word as it bears fruit and in this, of new life in those who believe. And that brings us to our third point this morning, to see how the Word prevails in the hearts and the lives of God's people. The victory of God's Word is not just uh, outwardly focused on those who oppose it, 
we see in fact that, and probably more vividly, we see it in the effect that it has on those who believe. So as we look at the apostles, we can see how the good news of Jesus prevailed in them. First, Luke tells us how they were emboldened to go on teaching and preaching this message. I, I don't like, I don't enjoy arguing with people. I will do it because I love truth. And sometimes that leads to confrontation, but I don't really enjoy conflict. It can be really tempting when you encounter resistance to something, even when you're totally convinced that it is something that is true, to relax those standards or to compromise that truth. But that is something that we cannot do, especially when it comes to the gospel, especially when it comes to this message of life. The apostles had every reason to lay low after this confrontation with the Jewish leaders, but they didn't. They were emboldened all the more to go on speaking, just as they had, uh, just as they had been after the first time that Peter and John were put on trial for preaching in Jesus' name. Jesus had called them to a mission. He'd equipped them to, for the task. They had seen his authority firsthand. The Holy Spirit was working in them and through them, and so they were committed all the more to the task. This brings us to the second way we see the word prevailing in and through them. Luke tells us that they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. All the apostles had a criminal record now. They had been marked as a public nuisance. Actually, if it hadn't have been for Gamaliel, the apostles probably would have been marked for death. Even so, they didn't look at their time in prison or the bruises on their body as a mark of shame. They actually saw them as a mark of glory. Now let's be clear about what's going on here. Uh, the apostles weren't glorying in being in prison. This isn't Peter trying to push his record label or trying to look gangster. They rejoiced because of their union with Jesus. They rejoiced that because in their suffering, they were filling up the afflictions of Christ. For them to live was Christ and to die, gain. They rejoiced because Jesus is worth it. They rejoiced because the Spirit bore witness with their spirit that they were children of God, heirs of Christ, heirs with Christ of God. They rejoiced because they knew that to suffer with Christ, to take up the cross that he calls his disciples to bear, is also to be glorified with him. If all we have in this life as followers of Jesus is, this, is a sort of self, if all we have in it to receive in Christ is, this, is in this life, then self-preservation is something that should be valued most highly. But the gospel of Jesus prevails in the hearts of his people because it assures us of a heavenly inheritance that will never be diminished because it, it lays on us a name of glory with Christ so that even if we suffer for him, we have an eternal joy in him. And the third way we see the word of God prevailing in his people in this passage is in the way that it equipped the church to go on living as instruments in the Redeemer's hands, ready and eager to do the work that God had appointed for his people to do. In verse 42, Luke says that every day and everywhere the apostles did not cease to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. There has never been a person who so turned the world upside down like Jesus. 
That's because he is the true King of kings and the Lord of lords who has conquered death, fulfilled all righteousness, and has brought righteousness and life to men and women everywhere to be received by faith. The word of Jesus' identity, his work, and his glory is a word that prevails in the hearts of his people. You know, it is something that Gamaliel was the one who issued this test of authority. Luke mentions him by name here, in, in part, I think, because of the wisdom of his words, but also because, if you know a little bit of biblical history, Gamaliel is actually one of the top rabbis in Israel who had trained a young man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul did not take his master's warning. In fact, he became known for his insatiable desire to put an end to the Christian faith until one day Jesus himself appeared to Saul and quite literally knocking him to the ground and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Which is another way of saying it is hard for you to resist. Gamaliel had warned the leaders of the council that if, they, if this was of God, they would be found to be opposing God himself. Saul was an enemy of Christ. He did not take his master's advice. He chose instead to pursue the church in an attempt to stamp it out. He was resisting God himself, but with a word, Jesus called Saul, prevailed in his heart, even though he was the bitterest of his enemies. That's the power of the word of the gospel. That is a power that everyone who has believed the gospel has experienced for themselves and is a power that even those who deny Christ will experience one day when they are judged by it. This morning we have seen in living color how the word of God always prevails. This is a message of life, a message that that springs up and bears forth a a living water in the hearts of a person that brings life to, to dry, thirsty people. Christ has conquered and his victory marches on through the witness of his people and the work of his spirit. So if you're here this morning and you believe this message, then let our scripture remind you of the potency of what we have been called to proclaim. If you're here and you have not yet trusted in Christ, then friend, today is the day. In this day of God's mercy, do not harden your hearts like these leaders did in the days of the apostles. Understand that you have offended a holy God, that you deserve God's just wrath. But also understand that he has loved you and sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to live the life of righteousness that you cannot to suffer and to die on the cross, the death that you and I deserve, to conquer and to secure forgiveness and new life for you through his resurrection, and to rule and reign exalted at the right hand of God until he returns to make all things new. May this message of God's grace prevail in our hearts, even as it did in the days of the apostles. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we we have looked at the power of your word. We have looked at the gospel of grace and as, as it has prevailed. We, we have ex- for those of us who have believed in Christ, we have experienced the power of that word for ourselves. And Father, this morning I pray that even as we have looked at this, even as we've heard the gospel as it was preached by Peter to this, co- to this council, I pray, Father, that this message would take root in our hearts and bear great fruit, 
that your spirit would work in and through us for the glory of Christ. Father, we thank you for this message of the gospel that has gone out, that has, that has come to us. And we pray, Father, that you would make us faithful witnesses to it, even as we tell others about the love that Christ has had for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.